Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. The trial of Derek Chauvin versus the state of Minnesota started this week. Derek Chauvin is the former Minneapolis cop that murdered George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. We start the episode by identifying several systemic contradictions exposed by the actions of the Minneapolis police and the way in which this affects the working class. Finally, we summarize the first two days of witness testimony. It's always stacked against the worker, no matter what it is, to convict those in power. We know that, right? Yes. So the question then is, like, at what level do the workers within any any part of society begin to question like the structure at all? And I think the Chauvin case is one of those times in which the structure has to be questioned, and which is why you're seeing so many people coming out and willing to testify against it because it's so egregious. Yeah, there's there's no way for the system to just pat people on the head and spin them around and send them on their way. Because, like, all the witnesses that saw this shit are, like, affected. It's not just one guy dying. It's the 30 people that were sitting there watching the cops murder somebody that are affected, too. Like, they, they can't just stop caring. And you saw one of the, like, minor underage witnesses today that was basically like, I still struggle with what I saw and what I could have done to prevent it. There's no choice there to like just say everything's fine, the system's fine. That's what's really fucked up. I think that's the part that's missing everybody. It's it's not just the one man's dad or one man was murdered or there's injustice on the uh, on the part of the police brutality portion of it. You know, how do we move forward with abuse or how can we how can we trust the police? How do we get to that point in life? And and that's a part where th- this is a really interesting case where it talks about basically the construct that is these individuals go to work every day to uphold the ruling class's rule. And a few bad apples isn't the right way to say it. It's more like there's probably a few good apples within the entire bad bunch. But even the good apples, let's say there are some, are basically powerless to do anything. I mean, you know, some of the facts of the case, like uh, the 911 dispatcher needing to talk to some of the supervisor because it got so out of control, shows you that they don't even know what to do because it, it's gotten so crazy. The the craziness of the factual information that occurred, it exceeded the system's ability to cope with what happened. There was no uh, like self-correcting mechanism that said, oh, well, this shouldn't have happened, and oh, because it's happening, we're going to dispatch the EMTs immediately, and we're going to prevent the cops from choking somebody out. It was like, I have no idea what to do when the cops are killing somebody on a video that I'm watching. What the fuck do I do? If you and I know that strangleholds are against the law, and you and I know that beating someone with a billy club or baton is illegal, opening fire in a public area, all these things are wrong— What's the public going to do? Because they're going to get absolutely crucified if they attempt to step in here. So there's no oversight. And then the oversight's created by the same cops that are already retired. The police, even amongst their own ranks, don't have any way to police themselves. Internal affairs or whoever it is, they don't have a way to police anything that's going on. The public is always hidden from grand jury testimony investigation. There's zero, you know, releasing of documentation of what police members have done right? The reports or, or just the internal documentation. And then if I were to go and let's say, let's say that MMA fighter who testified went up and just drilled the police officer, shove him right in the mouth to get him off of him. What do you think would have happened? They would have, they would have beat the shit out of him. Shot him six times in the back. 
Yep. Put him in prison, right? Whatever it is. And then they still would have buried Floyd. Yeah. They still would have they still would have they would have put him under like, oh, he was on drugs, this and that and this and that. So they would have they would have said he was a criminal and was trying to be apprehended and this person stepped in. So that's where the PTSD comes in because there's all these what ifs. I could have saved someone's life, but at what cost? And the cost would have been your own life. Yeah, like unironically not exaggerating. That that literally is the cost of the the group of twenty ish people that were watching Chauvin kill Floyd. We're all effectively saying this shit is fucked and you're killing him. But they have literally no recourse. That is the entire problem with policing, where, like you just said, if the MMA fighter, who is a professional MMA fighter and could legitimately probably beat the ever-living shit out of any one of those four cops, went and did so, he he's dead or beaten within an inch of his life. The police are an occupying force, and there's nothing that anybody can do while they are occupying. I think it's important to, to let that sink in one more time. The police are an occupying force, and there's literally nothing you can do about it unless you go after them through contract or go through them through city council or, or legal rules. If we rely on the justice system, which it's the injustice system, but we rely on the, the prosecutors and the judge, we've talked about this before, they're in cahoots with the cops. Because 99.999% of the time, I don't want to have a number, one out of a thousand cases, maybe it's bad police, but everything else is... They rely on police to give an account of why the defendant should go to jail. Yeah, there's all sorts of false incentives for the legal system with scarce resources. Judges are absolutely incentivized to be as expedient as possible because they have a large docket of cases. And this is true of criminal and civil. And you can take it one step further and talk about public defenders where they're the lawyers who do God's work in defending people that don't have a lawyer, can't afford a lawyer. And... If you think they get the same defense as a cop that murdered somebody, like you're sadly mistaken. And they're the individual that has to stand up against the prosecution's system, effectively, and attempt to get potentially innocent people, or at least poor people, a high-quality legal defense that allegedly everybody is entitled to. But that's really not how the system is set up. No, the system is set up to, most times solve the case by putting somebody in prisoner jail or finding them because that's what the recourse is. In this case, in the Floyd case, the state executed an individual on the streets. And now the state has to hold accountable the agent that they put out in the streets to uphold their own laws. And this is where the conflict comes in. The system doesn't know how to react now, like you said earlier, to the fact that every piece of this puzzle is now fighting against itself because the prosecutor has to convince that the cop is a bad person for doing the job that the cop was supposed to do, but he stepped out of the bounds at which the policing were supposed to legally be held to, but there was no other accountability up until this point. If he had kneeled on his neck and got up and didn't kill him, what would have happened? Literally nobody cares. We don't even know about it. None of the witnesses, they go on with their day, go, that was kind of fucked up. Nobody cares. They could have slammed his fucking head in between the car door and the in the car body, and nobody would have cared. They could have beaten the shit out of him on the drive. Not saying that people shouldn't care, but what we just described happens literally every day in America, and nobody cares. But because it was so egregious, this is where the problem is. And we are not saying police should be able to beat the shit out of you. At the end of the day, they they what did that what did that towel was that his name? Yeah, the the cop that was doing crowd control in 
the video. Yeah, Tao was was saying this. What you was it? The guy that was saying this. What you do when you do drugs? That guy. Yeah, drugs are bad, kids. Okay. That's it. Yeah. This is this is what happens when you're on drugs. They're basically already trying to frame and pin, you know, this dude up, hem him up on some bullshit ass charges. Like they're literally in the process of killing the guy, and the the guy's running propaganda in the crowd for, yeah, this guy's on drugs. Apparently, the cops can kill you when you're on drugs or something. That's fine. So the question now is that the the system and the state are in fighting with each other. In this specific instance, the county prosecutor of Hennepin, which is the county in which Minneapolis is located, was effectively removed from the prosecution, and the state attorney general, Keith Ellison, was brought in to do the prosecution. So this is an abnormal situation where you have the literal state entity prosecuting a crime that occurred in a county that is typically under the jurisdiction of the county prosecutor. So the contradictions reach such a point where the existing system of the county prosecutor, which is typically involved and actively participating with the police and charging crimes is out of the picture. So the system couldn't handle that scenario. And this is the ripple effect that you're talking about where, well, we don't have the traditional prosecutor, so we bring in the state. And the cop is doing exactly what the training says, but the training doesn't say to kill somebody. So the entire system is set up. And this was a triggering event that effectively pushed the dominoes down. And you're left in this this state where like literally nobody knows what's going to happen because the system is stable at this point. And there are so many observable instances where the system wasn't stable that you can't just switch it back under the rug. So this is a recap of a few days of trial, and, and one of the most interesting and maybe the uh, wildest thing we could look at was the selection of the jury. So jury selection happened over the last couple of weeks. There's some key game theory components to jury selection, and it's a very formal strategic process. You have bullshit TV shows like Bull where they act like models and science and shit are involved, but it's basically just a lawyer asking questions of somebody and having like an instantaneous emotional human response and saying yes or no. But as part of jury selection, there's some heuristics that are often employed. And when you think about jury selection, the phrase itself says jury selection. So you're selecting a jury, but you're really not. You're effectively selecting the people that you don't want on the jury. So you want to filter out the crazies. And as we saw during jury selection, if anybody watched it, it was a long kind of boring process in which each of the attorneys asked questions and you effectively wanted to weed out people that had, I'm going to say, non-normal opinions. And this effectively leaves you with people that don't pay attention to the news at all. Each of the defense and the prosecution have what are called peremptory strikes, and it allows them to say, I'm going to remove them from the pool. And they have roughly 10 each. I think it's 9 and 15, but some got added and removed. So regardless, jurors show up, they ask questions. Some of the the jurors are going to be removed for what's called cause, which says, I have an open and stated bias that I don't think allows me to be impartial. One of the key incidences of bias was that Minneapolis announced a $27 million settlement with the Floyd estate. And this happened right in the middle of jury selection. So a number of jurors or potential jurors who had heard about this settlement were removed for cause because the settlement was potentially a biasing act that would either imply guilt or innocence. So back to one of the classic examples in this specific trial of a juror that was removed because they knew too much. There was an individual who was a history teacher. I believe he had a PhD, and he literally talked about how he believed that the police were an occupying force, and he cited World War II as an example of occupying forces. So this is a guy who was literally making the argument that the police are an occupying force and are effectively fascist, and he got stricken. You don't want that guy as a juror if you're the defense, right? Like, why would you want that guy as your potential juror? So that's an example of filtering out the crazies. Even though from our point of view, the dude is 100% right, the system is set up to have checks and balances and the defense struck him. Another thing is that 
each of the prosecution and defense typically have roles that they want to fill in the sense that if you're the prosecution in a typical case, not this case, you want people who are very deferential to police and respect authority. But is that the case in the Chauvin trial? Absolutely not. I, I think it's it's a, a good depiction of an unstable system. So right now, normally when you're picking out the jury and you are assault on a police officer or broken windows crime, right? the jury wants to be pro-order, pro-police, pro-everything. right? That, that's what the prosecutor wants at that point in time. So now, does the prosecutor want pro-police or does the defense want pro-police? And it seems like the defense kind of wants pro-police here because the defense wants to protect one of their own. But the prosecutors are looking for individuals who are not pro-police, who are willing to say, yes, you are a police officer. He went he went above and beyond what he should have done. Whereas the defense wants someone who's going to say it was a very stressful situation. He did everything he could. You know, what would you do in this situation? Oh, my God. Think about the children type of mentality. Right. It's a very weird role reversal because, again, now the state is prosecuting one of its own, trying to pick jurors they're not used to picking. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So at the end of the day, 15 jurors were selected, and that was whittled down to 14 as the trial approached. And you have 14 seated, and two will become alternates. So as the trial began on Monday, March 29th, you had 14 jurors seated. And that leads us to a brief summary and discussion of the first two days of the Chauvin versus State trial. As the trial began, you had opening statements from both sides, and these weren't really that interesting, but we'll just kind of recap what their posturing was briefly. The prosecution effectively set to stake out that Chauvin is a murderer, and through the course of the trial, you're going to see that he's a murderer. And it talked a lot about what cops stand for, and they're supposed to protect and serve, and it talked about the Minneapolis motto and a lot of that stuff. One of the key phrases that they raised was, in our custody, in our care, is a line that the Minneapolis police uses. It appears as though the prosecution is ready to argue that George Floyd died in the custody of the Minneapolis police, and it doesn't really matter what his cause of death was, whether it's drugs or a knee to the neck or whatever. And that directly attempts to contradict what the defense is attempting to show in their opening statement, which was George Floyd had fentanyl in his system and the cop followed his training. So these are the two diametrically opposed opening statements. They weren't really that interesting. One item of note is that the prosecution in their opening statement did play the entire video of roughly 10 minutes for the jurors. And for most of the jurors, this was the first time they had seen it. And one of the key things about a jury trial is that we can't see the jury, but the defense people can. So they're sitting back and taking notes about who's reacting or people looking away or people writing notes down. What is the perception? Because at the end of the day, you need to identify the one person on the juror that's going to be the psychopath that says, I'm just going to be the lone wolf and I'm going to stand here and say, not guilty. That's what the defense is looking for. So day one opened and we had effectively three witnesses on this day. And we're going to largely focus on one of them, but I want to recap. So the first is the 911 dispatcher that we already talked about briefly. She basically saw something on the video camera and was so disturbed by it that she had to notify her supervisor. And this was the first time she did such a thing. The second witness was a gas station employee who filmed a series of cell phone videos and noticed the start of the altercation, which occurred diagonally across the street from where her gas station uh, is located. And her gas station is across the street from where George Floyd was murdered. Uh, her basic purpose in this, I think, was to get the video introduced and speak to just the general kind of circumstances of the event. 
Which makes sense, right? It's it's the only way for them to introduce a video taken from somebody with reason to why is this admissible. It's just another angle. And, and then the defense, if they don't do this, can say things like objection, you're on. We already have a video of this incident. And we, we see this video concept later in the day. And there are so many videos of this occurring that there's probably enough to literally 3D reconstruct the entirety of the events that occurred from all angles for this 10 or 15 minute period. One of the key things that was kind of interesting about this specific witness was they talked about, is this your reflection? Because she was shooting through a window, so you could see her reflection in the window. And it establishes that this is the actual person that was taking the video, and then later on she appears on security camera. And it just serves to establish that this actual human being was recording this and was at the location they said they were at. So people don't complain later that the moon landing was fake because it was shot in a sound studio in Arizona or whatever. These videos all occurred. Everybody is in each other's video. There's no way this could have been faked. It, the, the video is authentic. This isn't a deep fake, you're saying? the Russian. This isn't a Russian ploy to stop Hillary from becoming president? This is not an elaborate ploy. The third witness of the day is the most interesting, and his name was Donald Williams. And he's a professional MMA fighter who happened to be going to the store to get some snacks after he spent the day fishing. This is probably one of the... I want to say, I don't want to say intriguing, wildest, craziest witness to have ever. This person, this MMA fighter, is a literal trained killer. Like, the way he talks the entire time basically lets you know he could kill you or anybody he's fighting if he wanted to. But he chooses not to because he's an MMA fighter. Whereas, like, he's depicting Chauvin as somebody who is killing George Floyd while he's telling him to stop trying to kill him because he knows what he's doing. So some of, what are the key takeaways before I get ahead of myself? One, the MMA fighter says he basically told Chauvin that this is a blood choke. And it's like literally in the video. And, and what a blood choke is versus a, a air choke is you, you're basically cutting off the blood circulation to the brain, which is different than you can't breathe choke, which is trying to cut off your air supply, right? Because even in that case, blood can still circulate to your brain, potentially saving you from dying and blood, brain damage and all this other stuff. But we're not getting into those nuances. He then can explain the entire time how this thing called a shimmy works in which the cop keeps moving his knee to get more and more pressure on the neck in order to choke this man out more, to cause more pain and suffering. Very deliberate. So you have this witness who actually trained with some of the other officers within different police forces too in the area in all this MMA who's now the witness in the case in which he's trying to describe to the jury how this cop is killing him. And it's probably one of the best witnesses in the history of cop police brutality ever. I mean, because he's, he's looking at them saying, oh, you just do this and this and that. I mean, okay, you can't see my arms because we're on a podcast, but you know, he's going through the motions of like what it means to choke. It's, it's wild. And then he basically says he murdered him. And the judge got all pissy and strike this, but he knew it was going to happen. He was going to murder. He said, his eyes turned Wait, turned up just like a fish in a bag running out of air, something like that. He could tell that he was upset. He said his stomach hurt. He knew he was dying. Like he he knew everything that was going on with with George Floyd because he's an MMA fighter who's knocked people out before using these same techniques. And he talked in length about how to do these chokes and what it feels like to be choked out because he's done it and been choked out. And to put this whole testimony in context, he's a 33 year old black guy who's lived his entire life in Minneapolis. And he gave 
no fucks while testifying. He stood and watched George Floyd die while he yelled at the cops the entire time, you're killing him. He knew in the moment that it was murder, and he sat on the witness stand, calm as could be, and called the guy a murderer effectively. Yep. Like, it was phenomenal. He also testified that he told one of the cops that they're going to kill themselves in two years after what they had just done. And you continued to yell these types of things after Mr. Floyd was gone, right? Uh, me and Mr. Tao had words back and forth, correct. And I think you said something about um, hoping he would shoot himself. No, I didn't say I hope he's going to shoot himself. I said within the next two years, you will shoot yourself in your head for what you did. I didn't say hope. I don't hope death on anyone. The Bible doesn't allow that. So that last statement happened at the start of day two during the cross-examination. The defense was entirely committed to attempting to frame Donald Williams as this angry black man. They, like, literally are using the angry black man trope. Mr. Williams is like, nah, dude, I'm not going to play into that. I was calm and collected. I was frustrated. He used basically every word but angry in an attempt to say, look, like, this was absolute total bullshit, but I did what I needed to do. And then after everything ended, he went and talked to Tao kind of separately or whatever. He actually talked about how he had to help another young man not overreact. Yeah, he was, like, being the father figure of, like, all these kids that fucking witnessed a murder. The end of the first day was crazy because they're playing Williams, Mr. Williams, the the clip. He's a shimmy. He's saying things like, this is a shimmy. He's putting his, he put his foot up here. Then all the pressure's in his neck. Look, he's moving his shoulders over to get more pressure over the neck. He's just talking about, talking about, talking about it. And then the video just ends. The internet dies. Whatever happens, technical difficulties, and there's nothing. They, they like escort out the, the jury, and the jury gets to go home and think about this video and this cop killing this man without any other context. And it was super abrupt, and it was just like, everybody leave. We're going home. We can't, It's not an open trial anymore because we can't fucking maintain the internet or something in a fucking government building that's behind fucking war fences. So that was the end of day one. So at the end of his testimony on day two, he basically says, I went... And I'm going to use the word mentored, but he didn't. But he had to sort of console other people that were at the scene that saw this shit who were super frustrated. Mm -hmm. And I believe one of them was a minor and under underage and just did not know what to do or how to feel. And he kind of de-escalated the situation. He was basically a model citizen on this day. And he was a model witness. Model witness. I mean, he he did everything in his power to stay calm. The defense tried to trip him up. They couldn't. They tried to put words in his mouth. They couldn't. His story was consistent the entire time. He didn't speak fast. He didn't speak slow. You know, he, he did everything he could. He he could recall all the events. He wasn't nervous at first. He was nervous. You know, but that that just happens when you're like front and center of like one of the biggest things you're ever going to do in your life, right? Is to make sure Chauvin does not walk out of the out of that courtroom a free man. After Donald Williams, four underage minors were brought up successively and we're not going to go into this in any great detail but the the general premise here was that they all recorded cell phone video or were present at the scene with some testimony to add the individual that recorded the canonical viral video was the first to testify and she was 17 at the time now 18 and the biggest takeaway from her testimony was that she's still haunted by what happened she thinks about how she could help George Floyd at night and what she could have done, but 
there was realistically nothing she could do, but it, it still haunts her. She has PTSD. She relates to it potentially being her dad and just like, what is she to do? She's 17. What a fucking traumatic event for a 17 year old. The next witness was her nine year old cousin who was with her at the time. And this, this was really wild testimony because this nine year old has absolutely no fear. Like she has no context for what's going on in the courtroom. And she's just telling it like it is, like she remembers it. Maybe it's not even like she remembers it. Like who the hell knows, but it's not like you're going to charge a nine-year-old with contempt of court or perjury or whatever. So she's just saying whatever she wants to say. The main thing that she said was that when the paramedics got there, Chauvin is still knee on throat and they had to kind of like tap him on the shoulder and like say like, you can stop killing this guy now. And she says that the defense doesn't have any cross and she gets to go home. There were also two additional minors that were present at the scene and recorded cell phone video in some capacity, and they stated generally similar statements. George Floyd was saying, oh, I can't breathe, kind of just your nominal, like, this happened in real life, and I was there, and I'm in the, I'm in the video, and I'm talking, and this is where I was, and this is why I started watching. Just some procedural stuff to get the video introduced. So you have literally four or five different angles so far. There's going to be no dispute over the accuracy of the video. The final witness of the day is a Minneapolis firefighter with an EMT certification. And like Donald Williams's testimony, this got wild. This individual is trained as an EMT and a firefighter, shows up on the scene, right, and has no control of what's going on. There's absolutely zero way that the medically trained person at this point in time can do anything because they have four psychopaths standing around murdering somebody and it goes back to the idea of what can a citizen do? Nothing. What can this what can this EMT slash firefighter do? Nothing. Because they're powerless. And and eventually, we'll jumping over a few things. Yeah, they got to the point where they called 911 because it got so crazy. And then to the point where it didn't even matter anymore because not, they couldn't do anything even through 911 that they just started recording video. And like that progression was just very like visceral and observable through the testimony. In the, in the general collection of videos that you've seen of this event, she's the one yelling, take his pulse. And she yells it over and over and over. The cops acknowledge her, effectively, you know, tell her to fuck off in whatever indirect way they, they do. And she keeps saying, take the pulse, take the pulse, take the pulse, whatever. She eventually reaches the point where it's like, why is the fire department, why is the medical, like, why, why is it taking so long? And she's a firefighter. She knows all the intricacies of dispatch for the most part. She can tell you that the response time to this particular location based on stations and whatever took longer than it should have. She just empirically knows this to be true. And she's just kind of looking around going like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? So she eventually called 911 and she basically snitches on the police and says, where the fuck is everybody? And then eventually their fire department shows up and she hangs up because the fire department's already there. One of the interesting things from her testimony is that she said that when the fire department showed up, they went into the, the grocery store and started looking for somebody. So the the fire department had not a fucking clue what was going on, and they were late. It like it just makes no sense. And she she knew that at the time and was basically just sitting there going, "This dude got choked the fuck out. Nobody ever took his pulse. And why wasn't the fire department here?" At one point, she blames the police or dispatch for not routing people correctly. If Amazon can put up like heat maps of where employees are using basic tracking, so they can have anti union rules. If trucking companies know to the second how long it should take you to get something done, if if parcel tracking can know whether or not a container was tipped over or the temperature was too high, 
those things can exist for the police. If Tesla can have six cameras on their cars and show the person that dinged your door, there's no reason why every cop car doesn't have six cameras on it so it can hit wide-angle views. In audio, the automatically records. It's it's all there. It's it's because if they do that, they won't be able to do their job, which is basically abusing the population. Absolutely correct. The firefighter witness basically stopped short of saying that there was a cover-up, but she very overtly says, I don't know why the response times were this long. And she, and I believe she says, I don't believe it. it and it it has nothing to do with the case. Like if if the fire department shows up earlier, like does George Floyd get saved or maybe did the police not call it incorrectly? Who knows? It doesn't really matter. But she's still up there just going, what the fuck? Another piece of her testimony is that she's standing there for like 10 minutes and she doesn't hear a fucking siren. That's how you know when medical or the fire department was called. You can hear this shit because they have to drive with a siren on. They have to drive with a siren on when they go to a call. It's Minnesota law. This stuff is just so basic that as a as a firefighter, you just know it. And it enters your thought calculus. And it's just, okay, well, did they call this in? Why, why has it been 10 minutes? Like, what's going on? And it just adds to her experience of, this shit was super fucked up, and she couldn't get them to take a pulse. This firefighter. If someone starts yelling at you on your job, what do you do? Like, do you either A, get distracted, or B, do your training? Roughly that. They're trying to discredit the witness. And basically saying, if you're screaming, take the pulse, and the cop is in the middle of murdering somebody, he's not going to be able to go take the pulse because he's distracted. He was getting yelled at during his murder, so he's innocent. Oh, no. Normally, you would say something like, I follow my training, because that's what you do. And firefighters get yelled at all the time because everything is chaos. Cops get yelled at all the time because everything's chaos and they're bastards. She got asked, well, have you ever been filmed fighting a fire? (laughs) Yeah, that's what it was, yes. And you're like, boom, got me. Got Got me, yeah. I've never been filmed fighting a fire. Everybody put their sunglasses on and left. Yep. Boom, defense drops the mic. She's discredited. She has to leave with her head tucked, her tail tucked between her legs, her head tucked low. And she's like, yeah, people like to watch shit burn effectively. You generally train in the scenario which you're going to be in. And it's not like she is a rookie firefighter who's never put out a fire before. So, of course, she's been yelled at. She's been taped because people tape shit burning down all the time to put on YouTube or Facebook and shit. Videotaping is pretty benign. I know that it used to be that old video cameras would suck your soul out of you and you could feel that. But the modern cameras don't do that. So you don't even know that the light that's reflecting off your body into the lens of the camera into the CMOS is being absorbed from you anymore. This needs such little power. I mean, that's such a ridiculous ass question. It just doesn't make any sense to me in my mind at all. Why do you ask that? It's like you've been to a wedding, right? Have you been photographed before? No. What is that? When I was three, I was in a wedding, and somebody took my picture, and I don't have a soul now. So, and then she's like, yeah. And then the follow-up question is, was, has anybody ever yelled at you while you're fighting a fire? And she's kind of just like, who, what? Uh, yeah. No. And then it goes into this hypothetical thing about, like, well, what if somebody yelled at you? What would you do? And what she eventually do? says, well, I would stick to my training. And she says a line like, 
the fire that's burning and potentially damaging and injuring a lot of people is way more important than the person potentially screaming at me. And this plays right into the false choice. The defense lays down, which is, well, you followed your training, which is effectively what the intent of the whole cross-examination was. Oh, you, you followed your training if somebody was yelling at you. Well, Chauvin did too. And it's like, I, I don't know how you can compare fighting a fire to like choking to death somebody while somebody yells at you. They're, I, they're incomparable. Who gives a fuck? And, and I have a really hard time understanding how their defense is going to play the whole, he followed his training shit. And, and the big angry crowd of underage teenage girls was scary. So her testimony proceeds on this weird firefighting path and kind of just fizzles out there because she's really not willing to bend what her statements are to appease the defense. And the defense kind of transitions and asks a question, something along the lines of, well, in one of your reports to uh, an investigator, I don't remember if it was the FBI or whatever the Minnesota like state investigation unit thing is, but she's effectively reluctant to be like, yeah, I remember saying that to this guy that I talked to, you know, 12 months ago. And then there's an argument over whether she needs to look at the transcript or not, or she ends up doing it. Did you describe Mr. Floyd as a small, slim man? World. Yeah, it appeared to, uh, with three grown men on top of somebody, it appeared that he was small and frail. Okay. But I know that's not a, to be there's true, There's no obviously. question. I was finishing my answer. Members of the jury, we're going to quickly remain. Please uh, go back into the courtroom. Counsel, remain. Witness, remain. And the judge, like, flips a total major, like, shit fit at this point, sends the jury out, and then basically yells at her for saying, like, you have to only answer the question asked or whatever. And she's like, I wasn't done yet. Be seated. We are outside the hearing of the jury. Ms. Hansen, I'm advising you, do not argue with counsel. And specifically, do not argue with the court. Is I, the cameras will... off? Are the cameras off? No, they are not. We are on the record. Okay. You will not argue with the court. You will not argue with counsel. Mm -hmm. They have the right to ask questions. Your job is to answer them. I was finishing my answer. I will determine when your answer is done. Okay, well... And so, do not argue with the court. Do not argue with mm -hmm. counsel. Answer the questions. Do not volunteer information that is not requested. The attorneys for the state have redirect. They can ask you questions if they think that certain things were left out. Okay. It is counsel's prerogative to ask you leading questions and for you to answer those and not volunteer additional information. Okay. Are we clear on this? We're clear. Thank you. Come back tomorrow at 9.30. And so she's like arguing with him again while he's telling her like not to argue with him. And she just like gives no fucks and gets told to come back tomorrow at 930. And she's like, fuck it, whatever. I don't give a fuck. And that was the conclusion of day two. The only real change you can do if you hate this shit is to get active locally. And that's to convince your city council or get on city council to change the fucking rules for the cops that says they're not allowed to exist. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.